This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Festival. I've seen photographs of fishmongers right on the waterfront where the wharves are selling right on the street, selling big piles of fresh Dungeness crab. It wasn't a particularly expensive dish even when I was growing up. Mm. It would have been expensive probably anywhere except a city that was bordered by Dungeness crab country. Right, 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 right. Now it feels very fancy and expensive. <laughs> well, now it is expensive. It is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't well, just feel expensive. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're digging into a salad, or rather, the origins of crab consumption in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, told through the lens of a very famous and classy dish. Who invented the Northwest seafood salad everyone loves? Who invented Crab Louie? So that is the topic of the video. If you haven't already seen it, we suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. I believe it was an article in the Seattle PI that you found from the early early 20th century saying a trip to Seattle without crab a la Louis is like a trip to Paris without the Eiffel Tower. I know. So classy. <laughs> you know, we started to look into this because a viewer wrote in and said, you know, you did a food episode that talked about all these foods that Seattle invented or made famous. And that is uh, reputedly the birth of the Seattle dog. But you didn't include Crab Louie. And I thought, oh, that's a mistake. But Mm. I didn't know that Crab Louie was from here. So, you know, it's one of those nuggets. It's one of the great things about readers, listeners, viewers. You get these little bits of information. And so I decided to dig into it. And I knew one thing I knew is that crab, seafood, shellfish in particular, Consumed in great quantities in Seattle. I mean, indigenous people, the shell middens. Of course, native peoples on the coast had been eating Olympia oysters, clams, and other shellfish for thousands of years and left the evidence in old repositories of dining debris we call shell middens. Um, Seattle is known for seafood. We have fishing fleet that goes and gets the fish and brings it back. We have the Pike Place Market. And I know growing up, salmon and crab were not uncommon on the dinner table, at least at my house. Uh, they were often brought out when we had guests from out of town, from New York. It was sort of a way to show off. Be like you go to Maine, you get lobster, right? Right, yeah. yeah. And uh, so my mother would serve Dungeness crab, crack crab. We'd put a couple of crabs in the middle of the table. People would tear off chunks, you know, crack, eat eat it. And she used to put bowls at every corner of the table for us to throw the shells in. And we really liked it. We felt like, you know, Vikings or something, you know, getting to throw stuff on the floor. (laughs) And it wasn't actually on the floor. It was just in the bowl. But yeah, you sort of felt like it was a feast, a regional feast. So I knew that, you know, Seattle had been a place for salmon, for oysters, for crab, fresh crab, and uh, so it didn't surprise me that, that something like Crab Louie might have been popularized here. But it turned out the story was more complicated. <laughs> As usual. 
you know, speaking about our other conversation about folklore, it strikes me that in some level, a recipe could be similar to folklore in that it might be, in some cases, difficult to track down its official origin, you know, because what really counts as its official origin? At what point does it become Crab Louie? Right. I don't know. It seems to me that finding the sort of origin of a recipe could be as difficult as the origin of any kind of like oral history or something like that. Yeah, I think that's really true. And and it was true in, in a number of ways. So I decided to talk to someone who has studied recipes in the Northwest. <laughs> and there's a, a scholar named Jacqueline Williams. And she's written books about frontier, Northwest frontier cookery and women on the Oregon Trail. What did they eat? How did they prepare it? What kind of kitchen utensils did they use? When did, when did things get better? And so she's made a study of cookbooks, uh, the first cookbooks that were published in the Pacific Northwest. And to do that, you also need to study where those recipes are coming from, because these are people coming from Missouri, or they're coming from Maine or Illinois or someplace else, New England. They're bringing what they want to eat and what they know about, and then they're writing those recipes. And in some cases, they're adding new things. Mm. So, for example, I saw some recipes in some of these old books that referred to crab salad. Mm. So I asked Jacqueline could this be the origin of Crab Louie? And she said, well, you have to be very careful when you see that people, like you read a newspaper story and it says the picnics, they serve crab salad. She said, you know, in in the frontier period, that was probably more like tuna salad. Mm. In other words, it's mainly mayonnaise-based mixture. So it doesn't necessarily mean what we mean by salad. Mm. And then she said, you have to be careful about ketchup. Like, one of the elements of crab louie is you've got all this fresh crab and you put it with fresh vegetables and then you have this red-ish dressing that you put on it mm -hmm. and that can range anywhere from something fairly tart and spicy to thousand island dressing and uh, there's a big spectrum there and she said well ketchup when you read ketchup in these old recipes it doesn't necessarily mean tomato ketchup Hmm. They made ketchup out of all kinds of fruits and vegetables. Um, they're, you know, ketchups that have oysters in them. They're ketchups. That, yeah, I know. In fact, the tomato part is a relatively recent addition. They're ketchups with, uh, you know, don't have any tomato in them. They're just other kinds of sauces that are preserved that you might mix. So you can't assume that ketchup in an old recipe means uh, what we mean by ketchup. Huh. But it was the same word? Ketchup? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, I mean, ketchup spelled a bunch of different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's a thing that has evolved. But now it basically, it means tomato ketchup. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it means one of a couple of brands that, right. <laughs> you know, exactly. everywhere. Hans Heinz and uh, that's what it. So, you know, looking at these uh, recipes, one of the earliest that shows up in a Northwest cookbook is in, in the early 20th century, pre-World War I. It shows up in a Jewish women's neighborhood cookbook it published in Portland. Hmm. But the key is the Louis dressing, not just plain mayo, but a zesty and often pink concoction, what we think of as crab Louis. Hmm. Um, someone pointed out to me afterwards, that's not kosher. Oh, right. <laughs> Shellfish. Shellfish are, are not kosher. Are not kosher. 
And so they were wondering, you know, how... So there's a... I haven't looked into why, but I'm sure the number of Jewish people in Portland in that time period was probably pretty small. So I think the cookbook was for everybody else. Yeah, yeah. You know? (laughs) Are viewers ever alert? (laughs) But... uh, so then I just began Googling, and it turns out there are lots of people who have looked into the history of Crab Louie, and there's all kinds of claims about it. And the claims generally come from, you know, amateur researchers. They come from restaurants themselves, claiming to be the originator of Crab Louie. Uh, there are a couple of restaurants in San Francisco that, that claim to have originated it early in the 20th century. Um, and they have slightly different recipes. And then moving north, there are people who claimed uh, James Beard, you know, claimed that Crab Louie originated at a restaurant in Portland. The Davenport Hotel in Spokane has had Crab Louie on their menu um, consistently since 1914. Mm-hmm. And their founder was named Llewellyn Davenport. Ah. And, and his nickname was Louie. And so they claim that they are the originators of Crab Louie. Um, but the hotel definitely happened after the Jewish woman's cookbook. So Okay. One version says that Italian tenor Enrico Caruso came to Seattle. And there's this whole story about how Enrico Caruso came to Seattle and he had a whole bunch of Crab Louie at uh, either the Olympic Hotel or the Olympic Club. It's uncertain kind of where that happened. And then he made it famous as a Seattle dish. You know, it became kind of a Caruso thing. And that turns out not to be true at all. <laughs> uh, Caruso, as far as I could determine, never came to Seattle. Like never even appeared in the city ever. No. So we know he was in San Francisco. We know he was eating. We know he was in the cultural milieu where Crab Louie would have been a big deal. But it wasn't in Seattle. It wasn't in Seattle. I mean, I guess you probably run into this so much again, this sort of game of telephone that is History. <laughs> historical. <laughs> this, you know, famous Italian tenor came to Seattle and made this very specific dish very famous because he loved it so much. He ate it at this hotel. You know, it's like, but that never happened. So the people who came out, the settlers who came out on the Oregon Trail, or even if they came by boat or both, they had some food that they might have brought with them, but those supplies would be very short-lasting. So they wouldn't have had lots of wheat. They wouldn't have had sugar, coffee. Those, those things would be limited. And they didn't really have a lot of livestock, with them. So what were they going to eat? Well, they ate an indigenous diet. They basically, when the Denny party got to Seattle, they were completely reliant on the Duwamish people mm-hmm. to provide them with game. And so uh, fortunately, the Duwamish, you know, used to be this massive estuary that was full of ducks. <laughs> and they paid the uh, Duwamish to go and, and hunt ducks and hunt geese. So they were eating, you know, basically seafood. They were eating salmon. They were eating 
you know, uh, shellfish, but they were also eating uh, bird and deer and things that that were easily caught. And it wasn't until they got settled, cleared some land around their homestead, and were able to then have vegetable gardens. Mm. And, you know, that's when you start to see people growing potatoes, uh, lettuce, other kinds of, you know, basic vegetables. So the idea that of fresh produce, it kind of happened here in stages, which are sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you would have in a crab louis would be a lemon. Hmm. Well, you know, you're not thinking about crab and lettuce and lemon in the 1850s or 60s, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a while before that's even that kind of meal is even really possible. So it turns out that the California, the Catholic fathers, the padres who came out and set up the missions, many of them brought lemon and orange trees with them and planted those trees in California. And that by the time of the gold rush, or after, shortly after the gold rush, by, certainly by the 1860s, uh, late 1850s, there, were com- there was a commercial citrus market in California. Well, anything happening in San Francisco would come immediately to Seattle because that's where people were coming from. That's where we were shipping lumber. There was a big trade up and down the coast. So suddenly you see in the 1860s in Portland, you can get fruits that are coming in on ships that have been to exotic places. I I found an ad. This is uh, from the Vancouver, Washington newspaper from the 1870s, and it's a cigar store. And it says, uh, you know, the ad basically is, uh, you know, come in, get any time of the best cigars, and you can get oranges, lemons, figs, uh, dates, and coconuts. Whoa, coconuts. Yeah, coconuts is because... (laughs) Uh, ships used to have to go to Hawaii to get the winds to come back. Oh. There was this kind of triangle that ship, sailing ships took. Huh. And so, you know, in the early days, you could get a coconut easier than you could get an apple wow. in Pioneer, Oregon. So wow. you see that the, this, the citrus business and lemons and fruits and things that you can then make preserves out of and stuff starts filtering north. Mm -hmm. And then by the late 1880s, and certainly by the 1890s, once the railroads are going, Mm. they're getting stuff from back east. And they're not only getting beef and pork from Chicago and meat and, and that kind of stuff. They have refrigerated cars and they're getting fresh lemons from Florida. But they're also getting, instead of just flour and sugar and basics like that, they're getting things like ketchup. They're getting things like Worcestershire sauce. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? They're getting all these things that, that sort of begin to go into a more sophisticated uh, Western style, sophisticated Western style diet. And all of these things begin to show up in these Crab Louie recipes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So somewhere in there is where crab salad became Crab Louie. <laughs> somewhere. Somewhere in there. <laughs> we'll be right back. Support for the Mossback podcast comes from the Crosscut Festival 
happening online and in Seattle, May 4th through the 7th. Join us in celebrating bold ideas for a changing world at our biggest event of the year, featuring fireside conversations, panels, live podcast recordings, workshops, and special events that explore forward thinking in politics, social justice, the environment, history, innovation, and more. Spend your week with the community of the curious at the Crosscut Festival this spring. More information at crosscut.com festival. Most of my adult life, I lived in the Bay Area, so crab was a big deal there, and Dungeness crab a big deal there. I always remember it being very expensive, though, and I never made any money, so I didn't eat it very often. Um, but, you know, when I moved to Seattle, I think um, it seems like culturally the relationship with crab was a little closer. For example, I don't re- recall having any opportunities to go crabbing, uh, quote-unquote, myself when I was living in the Bay Area. I don't remember that being a thing. Maybe maybe it was, and I just didn't know the right people, but um, it, it seems like you'll, you'll hear more stories or I have run into more people in my experience living in Seattle who, who actually go and collect some of these shellfish themselves. And so um, I had this, just this really one opportunity, but this little window into a world that seemed very casual and common to these folks. But uh, one opportunity a few years ago to go go crabbing near the San Juans with some people who had a sailboat and crab pots, and that was just what they did. And I guess, yeah, that's just a, kind of a big, um, you know, cultural aspect of this region that I was just sort of privy to for them <laughs> that one weekend. But man, it was incredible. Quintessential. Pacific Northwest moment. <laughs> right. One one that's thousands of years old, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think one reason we have more of the crab pots and whatnot is because the, we're a city, unlike San Francisco, which is on the Pacific, but not on an, uh, an inland sea mm-hmm. <laughs> in the sense of Puget Sound. So we have the Pacific Ocean that comes in, and it's created this incredible habitat it's cold water, and uh, there's tons of shoreline, and and a lot of people have access to a boat or a summer place, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And um, that, that summer ritual of catching the crab and eating them on the beach, um, and the same with clams and oysters, all, all of that is just, uh, yeah, something a lot of people from here grew up with, and people who come here... Yeah, they want to experience that. Speaking of people coming to Seattle and having crab, this sort of iconic thing that you offer, you mentioned that Anthony Bourdain uh, came to Seattle one time and you you met him or you had a a crab meal with him? It's a very foodie city. Yeah, I had a seafood lunch with him and a couple of other people down at uh, Taylor Shellfish in Pioneer Square. And this was all set up by his his people this was for his parts unknown parts unknown okay tv series and it was uh in summer of 2017 oh wow the last season before his last season yeah and his producers had got in touch with me they wanted to have some people at lunch to talk about seattle and and we we weren't prepped at all but it was just okay you're gonna have lunch at at a restaurant and, uh, you know, Tony's going to come in and have lunch with you and just talk for an hour. You know, that kind of a thing. Wow. So they, but they just found you 
production team found you because you're a local historian journalist? I was quoted in the New York Times some years ago in an article they did on the origins of chicken teriyaki. And Seattle played a key role in in the kind of invention of modern teriyaki and its popularity. Really? And it was this very sort of Seattle fast food. And that that craze kind of started here. Really? So so I didn't know this this story about teriyaki. Is there a a short version of that story that you could tell? Well, there was a, a, a man named Toshi who started a teriyaki place, actually right just a couple blocks from where we're sitting. Oh, really? So near Seattle Center? Toshi's Teriyaki. And that was like the first, you know, classic teriyaki thing where it's chicken, rice, little salad. And yeah, it just, it took off. It became like the fast food for the busy working parent on their way home. Uh Sounds very nutritious. Right. (laughs) When when, when was that? And this is, this is sometime in the 70s. Oh, okay. We can put in the ad for the Mossback episode where we discuss chicken teriyaki. <laughs> you can watch me eating chicken teriyaki. The classic <laughs> fast food of Seattle, chicken teriyaki. In 1976. Anyway, so I was quoted in the story, and his producers called me up and said, "Hey, we're thinking of doing. We're coming out to Seattle to do a show. We saw that you talking about teriyaki. We'd like to talk to you about that." So they came out, and I met with them, and and, uh, we ate teriyaki and talked about it and talked about uh, the city in general and that kind of thing. And then uh, that was it. And then they called me back and said, okay, we're definitely coming to Seattle, and we're going to be here on these dates, and we'd like you to to get together with Tony over lunch, And uh, but we don't want to do teriyaki. We're going to do something more seafood-oriented. And he'd done stuff out here before. He was no stranger to Seattle. Um, yeah, and then they just told me when, when, when and where to show up. And the restaurant was open to other people. Uh-huh. So we had a table with cameras kind of all around it so they could shoot different angles. And uh, But then they just started bringing plates of food out. Of course, it was an expense account kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like we had multiple Dungeness crabs. We had these huge platters with every kind of oyster you could want. Uh-huh. They had just had a run of smelt, uh, and they had brought in all this fresh smelt that they'd caught off of Camano Island, and they they quick deep fat quick fried it, so they were like French fries. Wow. <laughs> they were really good, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, sounds great. But anyway, we had this big sort of crab feast, and Burdain was staying at the uh, Edgewater Hotel downtown in the on Elliott Bay. And it's famous because rock bands used to stay there. The Beatles or uh, infamously Led Zeppelin stayed there and got into all kinds of shenanigans. But their big thing was you could fish from your window. Uh-huh. This was like Seattle's fanciest waterfront hotel. And and what was great about it was they give you a fishing pole and you could like maybe catch a salmon with it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so he was staying there and he was very engaging, very conversational, very much the, exactly the person you see on TV. and But he had some really weird things he wanted to talk about. And uh, he was talking about tech bros mm-hmm. and how much he didn't like tech bros. And there were a bunch of tech bros at the hotel. And so he, we were talking about that. Yeah. But what he really wanted to talk about was serial killers. <laughs> Seattle. 
If you're looking for a dump site to dispose of the recently killed victim of your serial killing spree, <laughs> this. He's like, you know. but, but my real question for you, historian. <laughs> is, yeah, why are there so many serial killers in, in Seattle? You know, and this is a reputation we have because of Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer and... You know, even the Hillside Strangler was caught up in Bellingham. And, mm. You know, there's just this sense that this is Seattle is a, is a charming, beautiful, natural town. But then it has this kind of dark character. He was very interested in that. You know, most of this was cut from the actual show. Yeah, no, I imagine. You're hearing part. You know, this is part of the conversation that really didn't make it much <laughs> of it make it on air, probably because we weren't. Uh, into it enough, you know, because I, yeah. I think I think we were we were all sort of like, oh, serial killers, it's a little kind of trite, you know. Mm-hmm. Every everywhere has serial killers, <laughs> right, right, right. But then he asked a really creepy question. He said, "Well, if you killed somebody, how how would you dispose of the body?" <laughs> and we all just kind of looked at each other like, "What?" And he goes, "Surely you've thought about this." <laughs> And all, all of us were like, no, no, I don't think any of us have. You know, we all looked at each other like, oh. no. Yeah, like, don't really spend time thinking about that. Well, the, uh... and then I was trying to be accommodating. So I said, well, I guess if I guess if I had to, I chopped them up and put them in a crab pot. <laughs> and... Put the pot down in Puget Sound, and there you go. And there you go. <laughs> so uh, it just cracked me up because uh, it was such a kind of a cliche topic in a weird way. But then it, he still got us to start thinking about, you know, like, what would we do? And I think that part of that was, well, is the reason there are serial killers here is it's so easy to hide a body. Mm. And there is a little truth in that, I think. Mm. Kind of if you look at the context of Ted Bundy, that's a topic for another day. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but. Yeah. The landscape somehow has lent itself to uh, hiding. Certain kinds of activities. Yeah. Huh. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that that was, hopefully he didn't go back to his hotel and try it out. Um, <laughs> right. Oh, God. Yeah, but but yeah, way to bring it back to uh, to crab, you know. Uh. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Bernard, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Cover art by Greg Cohen. And many thanks to engineer Rusty Bacall for building out an amazing COVID-friendly audio studio. If you'd like to check out more videos from the five seasons of Mossback's Northwest. You can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to KCTS9's on-demand programming and a subscription to the Mossback Den newsletter, where Knut shares even more Pacific Northwest history. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>